Good to be back with you this week. Uh, last week, this time I was on the road watching a two-inch tall Pastor Dan come up and speak. Uh, it's amazing what we can do with technology. Can you hear me? I don't... Am I up? Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dan, for preaching. I heard good reports uh, from you as well. It was good to be away uh, to get to know some other people in the community. Uh, that was one of my goals in going on this trip was to get to know some people. And not only did I get to know some people, got to be a, a testimony, a witness of here and there. And uh, what a blessing that is. You can con continue to pray that the Lord develops those relationships for his honor and glory. And I'd appreciate it. We're in Habakkuk chapter 3. So far we've made it through chapters 1 and 2. Amazing how that leads to chapter 3. And in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen a variety of moods from our prophet. In chapter 1, uh, he has a righteous anger and a frustration as he knows that God wants his people to be holy, and yet they're not being holy. The second confrontation added a level of fear as God had stated that he was going to correct the situation and he was going to do so by force. He was going to use uh, this evil empire that he was raising up to take out the nation of Judah. So our prophet responded with a, uh, a bit of righteous fear. Uh, like, oh, oh. <laughs> so as Habakkuk recounted the evil ways of the invading empire, no, no doubt he was also a bit anxious, dreading what was yet to come, knowing that the coming invasion and the exile that would follow that was going to be bad, very, very bad. In fact, uh, the evil times in the nation of Judah that the prophet was lamenting at the beginning of chapter 1, oh, why, is, why are God's people being evil? Why is justice uh, not going forth? Why does God's word seem to not be able to fix this? Uh, those evil times would actually be something that people would live long enough to look back on and say, look, those were the good old days. That's how bad things were going to get. So God's answer was indeed he was doing something and that we could surmise from the text that Habakkuk was genuinely surprised at God's answer. He did not get the answer he was expecting. But throughout the whole book, there is never a moment where we see the prophet lose faith. He believed God, knowing that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is everywhere and that he's in control that he is good. Not only did he believe that God was completely in control, he believed that it was right within the heart of God, that it was completely consistent with the heart of God for the nation of Judah to be holy, for God's people to live right lives. And because they weren't, God was going to take care of it by other means. Today we start chapter 3, which is both a psalm or a song and a prayer. So we're going to get real far all the way to, to verse 2. I invite you to follow along with me 
So we read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Father, you have packed so much into one verse about prayer, about how we should pray, about how we should understand you. So Lord, I ask that you would use this prayer, this verse, to challenge us in how we pray. I thank you for your guidance throughout this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go any further, some of you are thinking, what is Shigianoth? It's right there in verse 1. And the answer is, we don't know. Isn't that great? Now, uh, if you read verse 1 and then pair it with the end of the chapter, you, you get to understand that all of chapter 3 is indeed a song. The, uh, in fact, uh, the word Shigianoth, another form of that word, is found in the title verse of Psalm 7. Psalm 7, the title verse, says this, A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. You know that in the Psalms, they actually have one more verse than what we have numbered, right? Because each one of the Psalms has one of those introductory little verses. Uh, it, it, like in my Bible, in Psalm 7, it says, uh, Psalm 7, and then it gives that a Shigion of David and blah, blah, blah. Some of them are really short, like it just says a Psalm of David or of David. Uh, but that is not footnotes from the publisher. That is actually part of the Hebrew text. And in the Jewish rendering of these texts, they would actually call that verse 1. We don't. And so um, if you want to call it verse 0 or the title verse, uh, that is what that's found. That's how verse 1 acts in Habakkuk chapter 3. It acts as that title verse for the song. The word Shigion is a transliteration from the Hebrew to English where they took the Hebrew letter that closely represents our letter S and gave us an S and the Hebrew letter that represents the H and gave us the H and so on uh, because they don't actually have a translation for the word. The, the best that translators can come up with is that uh, it's some sort of musical notation. It might refer to uh, the mood or the tempo that the song was supposed to have. Uh, one, uh, one commentator said it could be either a festive jig or a dirge. And if you know anything about those two words at all, those are stark opposites. Uh, they just know that it's some kind of musical term to help them understand how this song was to be performed. So verse 1 is the title of the song, uh, which uh, fills all of chapter 3. Uh, the end of chapter 3 says, For the choir director on stringed instruments. We have a little more instruction there. Uh, it's evident that chapter 3 stands by itself as a psalm. So this 
this prayer, this song that is chapter 3 can be divided up into three basic sections, which is how we're going to handle them. Verse 2 is a compact but very loaded prayer of reverence for God and an invocation for God's will to be done. Sometimes, doesn't it seem redundant sometimes that we would pray that God's will be done because it's God's will and he's going to do it? But we have lots of patterns in Scripture of praying that God would do what God says he's going to do, and that's what we find in verse 2. Verses 3 through 16 exalt God for his power and his rule over, over nature and over the nations. And then the chapter ends with possibly the most beautiful confession of trust in God found in Scripture as Habakkuk proclaims that even though everything might fall apart, I will still rejoice in you, my God. Not just trust, rejoice. Which is perhaps why scholars are unsure of if this is supposed to be a festive peace or if it's supposed to be a sad peace. Because things will fall apart, yet the prophet declares he's going to rejoice in it. Anyway, we're going to be in verse 2 today, and our big idea is that God and his character should be the focus of our prayer. God and who he is, his being, should be the central focus of our prayer. So we see, first of all, in verse 2, that we should pray knowing God. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. The first step in an effective prayer life is knowing God. Those who do not understand God's nature or power or character are going to quickly be disillusioned in their prayer life because God's not going to answer their prayers. Because people who do not understand God will pray for things that God is not going to answer. In chapter 1, Habakkuk had neglected to remember the full scope of God's knowledge and sovereignty. He hadn't completely forgotten it, but he had he kind of zoomed in more on just the nation of Judah and, and the sinfulness and what was going on there and, and wasn't thinking big picture like God was. In understanding God, we need to understand that he is not one of those individuals who makes everyone notice him. Like the guy with 72 tattoos and piercings that you just can't help but notice. God doesn't work like that. He's much more subtle. Oh, sure. He has billions of galaxies that are his bling. Can I say bling from the pulpit? I just did. And that should get him noticed. In fact, that's scriptural. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the work of God. His artwork is found in the tiniest of plants and animals, even down on the cellular level that only in recent decades have we been able to see. We can see the complexity and beauty of God's handiwork. His work is everywhere, and we should notice it, but we are capable of ignoring it. And that's Romans 1, that even though, they, uh, even though rebellious individuals, unbelievers, have 
everything they need to recognize that there is a God just by looking at the creation around them, they refuse and they reject that knowledge. Our prophet knows Jehovah. He knows his work of creation, his sustaining power, his knowledge, his sovereignty. He remembers God's provision to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He recalls the emancipation of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, how God not only declared that they were free, he made them free. And in doing so, actually plundered all of Egypt with, uh, by the Egyptians saying, here, take our gold and just leave. Habakkuk knows that God is holy and that he loves justice and righteousness, which is why Habakkuk is so upset in chapter 1. But now, having heard from God in this immediate context, he also knows that God has set into motion a highly orchestrated series of events designed to purify the nation of Judah. So in our prayer, he prays, knowing all these things of God. We too need to pray, knowing and understanding who God is. Secondly, we see that he prays, revering God. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Fear equals awe, which is reverence. Nothing should capture our awe like God and his works. see an amazing sunrise or sunset and it inspires some awe in you that should lead you to being in awe of your creator you enjoy a good meal that should well up within you rejoicing to your creator that he would make such food and give us the capacity to taste Nothing should capture our awe like God and his works. In fact, everything should point us to God. Our first chapter started with a righteous complaint. Why is the nation so full of sin? Why does the law that is supposed to restrain sin, why does it seem to be powerless? And now in chapter 3, uh, rather than complaining to God, he is awestruck, dumbfounded at what God has in store to fix the problem. And you may be wondering, does Habakkuk actually mean awe when he uses the word fear here? Or does he mean terror? Because that word can mean both things. Well, it's a good question. Uh, but the next part of the verse actually gives us clarity. Uh, o your work, O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years revive it. Here in the third part of verse 2, Habakkuk is praying for God's plan. He prays knowing God, revering God, and now he's praying for God's plan. In the midst of the years, revive it. God, I have heard your acts. I have heard of your plans. Do it. Make it happen. That's not a statement of fear or dread. 
Yes, the coming invasion by the Chaldeans will result in much death and destruction and disaster. But Habakkuk is looking ahead to the promised restoration of Israel. That death and destruction has a purpose to purify the people so that they will return to him. So Habakkuk is looking forward to the outcome. He's looking for the return of justice and godliness among his countrymen. As you did mighty deeds in the past, O God, do it again. In my time, Lord, show yourself strong to save. So rather than stressing about the coming correction by an evil army, by force, he's encouraging God to do what he's going to do. By the way, that's always a good place to be. Instead of worrying about how God is going to fix the problem that's in front of us, just trusting him and encouraging him to do it. God's goal is to purify his people. God's goal is to purify us. A good place for us to be is, God, I know that I'm sinful. I know that you want to make me holy. Do it. Do what it takes to change my heart so that my actions reflect your goodness. Loving God more than we love our sin is always a good place to be. Habakkuk here loves God more than he loves his comforts. Pray knowing God, revering God. Pray for God's plan. Fourthly, pray for God's fame. The verse continues, In the midst of the years, make it known. This is the second time in in even one sentence, he says, in the midst of the years, that's Habakkuk's way of saying, in this time period. You've done it in the past. I know you're going to do it in the future, but do it in this time period. Make it known is not simply a prayer for knowledge, but for experience. Help us to experience your good work in our lives, even though it's going to hurt. Make it known. Make this prophecy come to pass. Now wait again. Doesn't this prophecy mean that all of God's people are going to be negatively affected, even those who are living a righteous life, such as the prophet? Yeah. All will suffer loss. Many will be taken into captivity, into slavery. All too many will be killed. So why does Habakkuk ask for God to do this sooner rather than later? Again, it goes back to our first point. It's because he knows the heart of God. God wants his people to be sanctified, to be set apart for holiness. Not wallowing in sin, not living like the sinful world around them, which they had been doing. He wants them to be set apart for godliness, to live godly lives in all avenues of life and everything they say, do, and think. 
So he says, in these days, make your reputation known to everyone that you alone are God and you are making your purposes come true. That's an incredible thing for him to say, that he wants God to actually bring about this disaster because by nature, we prefer self-preservation. And more than that, we prefer comfort. We prefer ease. God's ways in our life is seldom easy. That's not to discourage us. That's just to remind ourselves that that even though what God asks of us is hard, what he brings into our life is often very hard, it's because when life is easy, we won't trust him. We won't. We'll rely on our own strength and our own abilities, and we will not trust him. But when life is hard, the true believer in Jesus Christ is going to cling tightly to God. Because any any mirage of our own strength has vanished. And that's what's coming to the nation of Judah. How often do we pray that God's work would be made evident, that his work would be known by the world? He's asking here that it would be made known. Um, Do we ever seek the fame of God? That's a weird way of saying it. All sorts of people seek all sorts of fame for themselves. And what is fame? It's just more people knowing you. Shouldn't we seek that for God? That's how how the prophet is praying here. Make it known. We should pray for God's reputation, as it were. Our prayers should be God-focused and God-glorifying. All too often, our prayers are self-focused. Self-centered. Needs-focused. We pray for our physical needs, our physical comforts, our physical wants. I'm not saying we can't pray for those things. But even when we pray for spiritual needs, our spiritual needs, the spiritual needs of others, oftentimes we're not focused on God. He's not the center of our prayer. We are. But chapter 3 of Habakkuk, being a prayer, oh man, the focus is so beautifully fixated on God all the way through only thing that Habakkuk asks for is here in verse 2. And his request is for God to do what he was already going to do. God, I want something from you. I want you to do what you said in the previous chapters you're going to do. Is that a a prayer God's going to answer? Yeah. Yeah. So we need to think, what are things that God has told us in his word that he wants to do in our life He wants to grow us. He wants to make us holy. He wants us to be uh, proclaimers of the word of God. 
and find those things and then ask God to do those things in our life and you think he wants to do that? Absolutely. So we ask God to do what he was going to do and that God would be glorified, that he would be known for what he does. And the rest of the chapter, uh, the rest of this prayer is all about God and his works, about his reputation. And then he ends with that that beautiful commitment that he makes to remain faithful to God. There are no personal requests. There's no asking for a reprieve from the pain that is coming. With one tiny exception. And that's actually the next phrase. Where he prays for grace. In wrath, remember mercy. I think most of us, when we see something bad that's coming, we would pray for mercy. But our prophet doesn't do that. He says, in your anger that we have coming, that we deserve, remember mercy. So far in verse 2, the prophet has asked God to work out his will to make himself known. And the verse ends with a demonstration that Habakkuk really does understand God. So even in his asking for mercy, Habakkuk is doing so by appealing to God's own perfect character. God is mercy personified is he not it's completely within the character of God to be merciful to his people but Habakkuk does not make the mistake of appealing to his mercy without without appealing to his holiness to his righteous anger to his wrath see God is a God of mercy God is also the God of wrath That is not a popular thing to say. He's the God of wrath, pouring out right judgment on sin. But he doesn't stop being the God of mercy and being the God of wrath. He's both. He offers forgiveness and grace to anyone and everyone who turns to him. Not one does he ever turn away. We preach and proclaim rightly through the understanding of Scripture that God is the one who makes salvation happen. That I share the gospel with someone, they hear of their need of salvation, they turn in repentance and faith to God and become a new creature, but God is the one who did all that. Because I can go ahead and share the gospel with someone day in and day out, but if God's not helping them understand if he's not giving them new life, they're never going to understand it and they're never going to respond. But when we do share the gospel with someone and God does make them understand and he draws them, they respond in repentance and faith. They respond being a new creature and they can't hardly help it. 
God is the God of mercy, but he's also the God of wrath. If God were not the God of wrath, he could not be the God of mercy. Chew on that a little bit. If he were not the God of wrath, he could not be the God of mercy because the God of wrath is angry because of sin. And if God did not hate sin, he would stop being God. He would no longer be holy. He must be both the God of wrath and the God of mercy. So the ordering of this last phrase in verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy, indicates that Habakkuk rightly understands the nature of sin. The fact of the matter is that the nation of Judah deserved God's wrath, not mercy. The fact of the matter is we, each one of us, deserve God's wrath, not mercy. We deserve his wrath, his anger, his punishment for sin. We do not deserve mercy, and yet God freely gives it. He loves showing mercy. In fact, this short phrase, in wrath, remember mercy, is indeed a perfect description of the gospel. The crucifixion, the unjust, undeserved execution of Jesus Christ was the pouring out of God's wrath on him that I deserved. The crucifixion was God's wrath. The crucifixion is also God's mercy. His mercy offered to you and me. We learn much about prayer in this short but loaded verse. We learn that we should pray knowing him, honoring or revering him, pray for his plan, pray for his his name, his reputation, and we should pray for his mercy. God and his character should be the focus of our prayer as well. So, what does our prayer life look like? Are we praying regularly? And when we do pray, do our prayers consist of only asking for physical needs, of of health and upcoming events, or maybe events farther reaching like world events? And we should be praying for those things. We should pray for peace in this world. But these things should not be the major part of our prayer. Rather, our prayers should be God-centered, knowing him, revering him, asking for his will to be done, praying, knowing what his will is. His will is our sanctification. His will is uh, the salvation of others. Pray for things in his will, and God will answer. 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15 say this, This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have 
what we have asked for. It doesn't say anything we pray for God will give us. It says anything that we pray for in his will. Well, how do we pray in his will? Habakkuk has given us that example. So let's pray. Father, give us a drive to know you more. That comes through reading your word and and meditating on it, memorizing it, studying it, digging so that we can understand your character and your plans. Help us to honor you, to fear you, to revere you, to glorify and exalt you in our hearts and through our actions. Father, help us to be people who, who pray according to your will that we would that we would go deeper into prayer not praying just for the things that affect us immediately in this world even though we know that you care for those things you do and you want to hear them but father help us to see past those things into what you're doing beneath the surface habakkuk was startled to understand what you were doing behind the scenes making your will come about. And Father, if we understood what you were doing in our lives, we too would be surprised. So help us to pray according to your will. Help us to pray that for your name to be magnified and spread. Father, help us to pray for your grace. Knowing that We don't deserve the mercy and grace that you pour out into our lives. And and the unsaved world around us does not deserve to have their current sentence of eternity in hell removed. But you are gracious and merciful. That you are not just wrathful, but that you are willing to save anyone who comes to you humbly in faith believing that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Father, we thank you that you are the God who hears our prayers and who answers them. So we ask that today, this week, you would grow each one of us individually, that you would help us to know you better, to know your will better, Help us in our prayer lives that we would pray more powerfully so that when we come back together to gather next week that our worship would be that much more effective and powerful and intense because of how we've worshipped you in prayer throughout the week. So that as we gather again next week that our encouragement to one another would be that much more informed because we've been praying through these things and we see how God has answered them. We pray that throughout the week as we interact with each other that we would help one another to be people of thoughtful, God-centered prayer. 
So we ask that you would do this work in our lives, and we know you'll be glorified in it. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name.